If you have your Bibles, join with me in turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We are beginning this series, really continuing a series that we've been working through in our build class on parenting. And in parenting, we see the, the harmony and the necessity of relationship in the marriage and how that when we are parenting together and we're submitting ourselves wholly unto God, it is a matter of worship. It goes well for our children. God is honored with our lives. Starting next week, we're going to begin a summer home group series on the marriage. It is next week, right? Yes, yes, next, next week for married couples to come and come around. Today in 1 Peter chapter 3, we find that Peter is engaged in a practical section of this letter. He began building on and outlining us for us in framework of what it means to hope in the gospel. He lays out the framework for the pattern of us living out the gospel. And now he is applying these truths to, to several practical areas of these elect exiles' lives. Peter addresses how the Christians should relate to civil government or human institutions in chapter 2, verse 13. And then in chapter 2, verse 18, he carefully and lovingly addresses how the slave, without any way of deliverance from their circumstance, should relate to their master whether they are just or harshly unjust. And now for us today, we're considering the dynamics of Christian marriage with direct imperatives for wives and husbands. And so today, I'm just going to tell you, uh, we're, not, we're not wooing you with some fantastic sermon title or three points that, that you can take home and, and you can have the best life that there ever was. We are going to practically walk through this text as Peter has, has given it to us. And what I want us to do before we begin to investigate 1 Peter chapter 3 and the dynamics of Christian marriage, I want us to take a deep breath. All right? Because we're about to go on the journey. Just take a deep breath with me. I may need one more than y'all. Like, take a deep breath and know that we are about to talk about some uncomfortable things. All right? All right? We're going, to, uh, we're going to be talking about something that may can feel uncomfortable to us. Mostly because of this reason. Mostly because it has been taught and it has been abused without the context of 1 Peter. We often take these things and we see them and we, we don't take these in the context and it is abused. And even if you're not a believer here this morning, you might find yourself really objecting to this teaching altogether. And so it may be uncomfortable for you because you reject it as you understand it and as it initially appears on surface. But I think one of the things that we must do this morning is important for us uh, not to miss as contemporary readers of this passage that often leads us to really misunderstand what Peter is talking about is how countercultural this teaching really is. This is shocking teaching that Peter is about to embark on. This is scandalous. In the Greco-Roman world, 
there were several ethical codes of conduct several ethical codes of conduct that would speak to wives, that would speak to husbands, that would speak to servants and citizens and how they should relate to each other in their various relationships that were written by pagan philosophers of the day. And what is unique about the New Testament teachings compared to those ethical codes of Peter's day is that the Bible is speaking directly to slaves, directly to wives, and not just about them. And so this is countercultural. These Greco-Roman codes were all addressed typically to the head of the family. Why? Because wives and slaves and children were not considered generally to be human beings with the same moral agency and ability to weigh matters for themselves. This is a terrible world to live in if you are not ahead of the household. And this is not Peter's perspective. This is not the perspective of the Scriptures. The Bible addresses men and women, wives and husbands, children and slaves as fully human, fully responsible, individual, moral actors in their own right. Which to us seems self-evident, right? To us it seems obvious. But at this time, to address these people in this context of chapter 2.13 through verse 6 was absolutely shocking and scandalous. And if we look at the Scriptures, the shocking message continues when you notice the word likewise. You see it in the, in the very first verse of chapter 3. You see it again in verse 7. And what it's doing is, Peter is referring back to what has already been said when he addressed the slaves in chapter 2. So he said to the slaves, here's how I want you to conduct yourselves. If you find yourself in the situation where you have an earthly master who is an unbeliever, and now you are following Jesus and you are suffering unjustly for your faith, here's how I want you to act. And then having applied the gospel to slaves in the context of unjust suffering, he says, likewise, wives... Likewise, husbands. You see what Peter has done? He has made the slave the paradigm. The slave is the model of faithful suffering for Christ, which inverts the whole social order of the Greco-Roman world. Slaves would never be lifted up as a model for anything, certainly not for a husband as a master nor even a wife for that matter. But here's the truth that we need to understand when we go into this text. The gospel loves to overturn our wrong thinking. It loves to overturn the prejudices of our culture and to make the weak things of this world the instruments that God pleases to use for His glory and His purpose. The supreme example of this is the cross of Jesus Christ. He makes him son, His Son, His very own Son, crucified for sinners, the way of salvation for everyone who believes. This is scandalous. This is unheard of. And I just wanted to point that out here simply to make this point, that we need to take care 
in reading texts like this one not to assume more than what Peter is actually saying. And that we don't miss the real message because we're reading it through the lens of our contemporary debates and concerns. I want you this morning to invite you instead to try to hear Him in context because my hope is that you might find that instead of male-controlled chauvinism, Peter offers a beautiful, redemptive vision of the Christian home that we badly need to recover in our particular confused and chaotic culture moment of today. We need to hear this. Satan is trying to destroy our homes. The culture is trying to deceive our thoughts. And the Word of God has spoken. And we need to hear that. And no matter how shocking and scandalous it is, no matter how uncomfortable we may be this morning, know that it is the gospel that informs us. It is the gospel that changes our life. And it is the gospel that should lead our conduct. Before we read our passage of Scripture this morning, I think it is appropriate to see what Peter is already assuming that we know. That we, we have a biblical view of marriage. I want to be sure that we discuss, before we read this text, what we affirm as the church of Jesus Christ. What we both affirm here at Redeemer Church and the universal church of Jesus Christ, only informed by the Scriptures. It is the fundamental assumption that marriage is between one man and one woman for life as basic as the basis of the family unit. It may seem obvious assumption for some of us to make today, but for others it may seem offensive because we live in a time when to affirm one thing is often understood as condemnation of the opposite. In other words, we live in a world today where you cannot go on Twitter and say, I love oranges without someone being offended because you didn't say that you love bananas. This is the world that we live in. And it's important for us to understand that, that it may be an obvious statement that marriage should be fundamentally between one man and one woman. But we live in this time to where everything is confused. The New Testament Scripture celebrates marriage and views it as the building block of the family and one of God's richest blessing for human flourishing. Along with Peter, we affirm that for most people, the Bible prescribes the lifelong union of one man and one woman in the covenant bonds of marriage. And I am increasingly convinced that when Christians cling to this conviction and celebrate its purpose and joy, we are offering our contemporary, uh, our contemporary world a challenging alternative to the narrative that's all the way around us. While the culture says that marriage is temporary, 50% of all marriages today end in divorce, in divorce and it is skyrocketing. 
The culture says marriage is temporary. They even say marriage is not even necessary at all. They even say that a person's biological sex should have no bearing on their choice of a marriage partner. And this morning, we affirm by contrast with the book of Genesis that it is good for man, it is not good for man to be alone. That God has made us male and female in his image, and that man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two should become one flesh. We affirm with the Lord Jesus Christ that what man has joined together, let no man put asunder. And we affirm with Apostle Paul and Peter that Christian marriage is a beautiful and glorious picture of the way Jesus loves sinners and makes them His bride by giving His life for them in the Gospel. And then also... I want you to notice one more thing as we dive into this text. I want you to know that Peter's words here are so pastoral. I really love Peter's teaching here and his remarkable uh, really uh, honesty and realism. Peter says something, some, some very similar things that the New Testament already says about submission and leadership that you find all throughout the New Testament. But he is applying those principles here to a very pastoral problem. Peter is writing to Christian wives who find themselves in marriages where their spouses do not believe in Jesus. And Peter knows that it is highly probable that this is going to mean living with incredible difficulties, incredible tensions, and incredible sorrows in that marriage. This is real world stuff this morning. And because this is the real world, Peter offers real world counsel for marriages under extraordinary pressure. And that makes this passage extremely important for us this morning. We have to have and approach this with a biblical framework of our understanding of marriage. We have to approach this understanding the contextualization of our society to where marriage is deemed lightly and is not even important at all. So let's look at this passage together. And we have two words this morning. We have a word to the wives, and we have a word to husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, 
showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. On the first, we're just going to walk through this together, church. We're going to walk through this together. We're going we're to dive into it. We're going to say exactly what needs to be said and nothing more. Verse 1 and 2. Likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectable, respectful and pure conduct. Likewise, or some of your translations may say in the same way, this is continuing, as we've already said, the vein of instruction from chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Peter is continuing to address the various segments of the church that are prone to experience more suffering for Christ in the present Greco-Roman culture. They are to do this, this likewise submission, wives, as, just as citizens submitting to ruling authorities and slaves to their masters. And that can be very hard for us to hear. One, the term likewise, even though it does draw some parallels for us in submission, it does not suggest that the marriage relationship is anything like slaves or masters. We must not miss this. We can read that and we say likewise and we can be firm and say this is exactly what it means. But you need to understand the whole text. You need to understand the meaning of the text. We must apply wisdom here in applying this text and never ever confuse the evil human practice of slavery with the God-ordained institution of marriage. Don't confuse it. Don't get it twisted. We're talking about submission here. We're talking about a voluntary, sweet submission that is an imperative to obey, not a suggestion to consider. In this word to wives, I think it might be helpful for us to take, to take a moment and define what submission is and what it is not. I think it would be very helpful. What submission is not? It is not an absolute surrender of your will, wife. It is not a giving up of your independent thought. It is not weakness. It is not putting the husband in the place of Christ as if the husband is some sort of absolute authority. It does not mean that a wife should give up her efforts to influence and guide her husband. It does not mean that a wife should give in to every demand of her husband. And it is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. This is what submission is not. It's very clear. So what is submission? It is a voluntary willingness to place yourself under someone else's leadership. Submission here refers to a wife's divine calling 
to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to God's gifts that He has granted. It is the willing and gracious giving of yourself to the servant leadership of your husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. This is what submission is, and this is what it is not. A lot has happened in the church today. It's the reason why we looked at that. When we look at this outside of the context of what the Bible teaches about submission and about marriage, we may abuse this text. We may understand it wrongly. The role of submission here and what submission is, this is the universal teaching of the New Testament Scriptures when it comes to the role of husbands and wives in the home. You find the same language in the Apostle Paul as you find here in the Apostle Peter, in 1 Corinthians 11, in Ephesians 5, in Colossians 3. The Bible is not ambiguous in teaching that truth. The submission of wives to husbands mirrors the church's submission to Christ. But I don't want you to miss the purpose of this, clause, uh, of this statement here in verse 1. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Don't get caught up in that and miss, don't, miss, don't miss the purpose. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that what? Here's the purpose. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Peter's words are addressed particularly to, to wives with unbelieving husbands. But, don't miss this, the even if statement here, the even if statement implies that all wives are in view of this instruction. This is specific, but it is universal. So let's look at the text. So that even if some do not obey the word, what is meant by word? It is the word logos. It is referring ultimately to the gospel. So if they don't obey the gospel, to disobey the gospel, the word, means to not believe the gospel. This is kind of a theme of first, uh, of Peter. He talks about obedience and obedience being relative to, to faith. The meaning here is that wives, submit yourself to your husband even if there is a refusal to adhere to the truth of the gospel. Peter wants wives, through their willing submission to their husband and the conduct of their lives, to become the instruments of their husband's radical transformation through faith in Jesus Christ. Don't miss it. This is the purpose. There's a universal understanding of the relationship between the husband and wife here. But the purpose of Peter's Message here is to encouraging suffering wives in the middle of unbelieving homes. And they say, live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and watch your home be transformed through faith in Jesus. Now look, this is again a radical idea in Peter's time and context. You see, wives in the Greco-Roman culture were expected to embrace 
the religions of their husbands. They were expected to embrace this. To do something different would be to be totally and profoundly an embarrassment to the family and a social problem which would make you an outcast. And Peter is going countercultural again here. He is saying to these Christian wives, this is not an option for you. Now that you follow Jesus, no, in fact, you must work for the conversion of your unbelieving spouse so that they now come to share your religion. So I don't think that we completely understand what's happening because we have a lack of understanding of what's going on in Peter's time. And I think a message and word for, for wives today is this. If your husbands don't obey the word, he says, win them without a word. If they don't obey the gospel, if they don't believe the gospel, then win them without a word. Again, we need to be careful here. Because he is not saying you should never open your mouth to talk about Jesus. He understands that these men have already heard the gospel. The gospel must be articulated. There is a lie in the church today that says, preach the gospel, preach the word, and if necessary, use words. That is a lie. The gospel requires itself to be articulated, to communicate. How can they hear without a what? Not a doer, not a liver, without a preacher. One who proclaims the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed and it is through the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel that faith is born. To live, to understand anything else, to believe anything else is a lie and needs to be pushed away from the church. But what we need to hear and see here that Peter is saying something far more profound. He is saying in that home, you don't need to lead with that. The church has already proclaimed the gospel. Don't lead with that. Wives, we want you to lead with gospel-centered conduct that flows from your aim in life. Peter is saying, wives, I want your life to open a door for your witness, for your words. I want your life, your demeanor, your character, your attitude, and your persevering to be a living demonstration to your husband of the transforming, redeeming power of the gospel at work. That's what I want you to aim at. And verse 2 elaborates on what is involved in bringing unbelieving husbands to faith. It elaborates on the aim. It says, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. When Peter speaks of the winsome conduct of the wife, he's not referring directly to how the wife should interact with her husband, though it is commended by Paul in Ephesians. Instead, Peter is pointing is that good and respectful conduct of wives stems from the good and respectable relationship they have with God through Jesus Christ. So why does a wife submit? Why does a wife submit? Wives do not submit to satisfy a husband's vanity, to promote his reputation, to show how godly they are, to avoid conflict, to impress their neighbors, or to even manipulate the relationship. The wife submits because of a relationship with and a trust 
in, her, in a holy God that has saved her and redeemed her forevermore. This is why that, that the wife submits. So Peter's point is, there's really no argument that can effectively disarm objections and undermine opposition to the Christian gospel as effectively as the beauty of real godliness, of real holiness in the life of the home. And that is a principle for all of us in every, every circumstance, every situation. And that brings us gracefully to verse 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Listen, we need to apply some common sense here. There's a lot to this we're not going to be able to cover, but Peter isn't saying that a wife should not care what she looks like that she shouldn't pay attention to her appearance. He's not saying, look, don't pay attention to the way you dress. What is he saying? He is saying, stop focusing on the externals. Don't prioritize mere appearances. Beauty is not about shapes and colors and how much money you spent and, and, and whether you're wearing the latest thing or not. Real beauty, he is saying, real beauty that will attract and join and cement a couple's intimate relationship with each other comes from within, not without. And here goes Peter counter-culturing again. A lot of scholars think that part of the background to the adornments that Peter mentions here have to do with dressing seductively in this culture and time and place. And Peter goes against the grain of culture and says, that is no way to win your spouse to your Savior. The, the hidden, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, Peter says, that's what God finds beautiful and that's how He wins your husband to Christ. He defines what true beauty is and what is precious in His sight. And that is what, wives, Peter is instructing here for you to display. The adornment that God desires is not external, but internal. And the primary focus of the wife is not on the external appearance, but rather with the relationship with God. The inner self. This inner godly adorning of the wife is eternally beautiful. And unlike the jewelry that you wear, the beauty of your clothes, the, 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 the beauty of your hair, the inward person never fades. But it's not only is it eternally beautiful, it's even more beautiful than that. It is beautiful because it is precious in the sight of God. Don't miss this, wives. Your inner person, God says, is precious in His sight. When you love Him and you long for Him and you want to, to enjoy Him and be winsome in your relationship with your husband, 
God says this is precious. I don't know what I can say other than that should captivate you. That should stir your heart and your soul to want to worship the Lord and want to honor and submit to your husbands because God says it is precious. Dear believing wife, you are precious in my sight. And this affirms God's own words when He says humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. He says that in 1 Samuel 16, 7. What matters to God is not what people look like on the outside, but their godly character and the conduct that flows from within. Let's continue on. Let's look at verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear that is frightening. Do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, in the pagan codes of writers in the Greco-Roman world, ethical instructions are given about how wives should behave. The exhortations were usually reinforced by appeal to the, some example of some admired Greek woman from history. This is the reason why they would braid their hair. There's nothing wrong with braiding their hair, but in that time, to braid your hair was to look like some heroine of Greek time. And, and Peter is kind of flipping the script here. He's sort of copying the tradition as he makes this point. Only now, the Greek-speaking wise to whom he is writing have become Christians. And so Peter is appealing not to some famous Greek heroine of history, but to the matriarch Sarah, the wife of Abraham, who together with Abraham, her husband, Peter says, has now become your spiritual ancestor. There's a lot here. We're about to unpack it. Verses 5 and 6 provide example for ho from holy women of the past to encourage the women of the church to submit themselves to their husbands with a gentle and quiet spirit. Why were these women called holy? These women were called holy because they lived in the way that was pleasing to God as they were set apart for His glory and His purpose. And the most important feature in the verse is that these women put their hope in God. And this comment, uh, this comment here is very instructive for the wife today because it informs us that these women did not submit to their husbands because they believed their husbands were superior, but rather they submitted because they were confident that God would reward those who put their trust in Him. This is a major theme of 1 Peter. We, again, we have to take it in context. That eschatological hope brings consolation in persecution. And believers are, 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 are required and are instructed to set their hope completely on the future return of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, 
Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice something between 5 and 6 here. I want you to notice this, this theme of hope in God and the logical connection between the submission of the holy women of verse 5 and the as Sarah obeyed, as Sarah obeyed Abraham of verse 6. What we see is an example. The example of Sarah's submission is when she called him Lord. That's found in Genesis 18, 12. You see, we see the faithfulness of Sarah all through her life. We see it in, in Genesis 12. We see it in Genesis 20. But this specific example is how Sarah responded to the Lord when she heard the shocking news that she and Abraham would have a baby in her old age. She heard it. She wasn't really in the conversation. She laughed. The Lord rebuked her laughter, right? A year later when you visited, they had a son. But, it, but Peter understood that even in her, the spirit of, I can't believe that this would ever happen. We're old. She couldn't even, biologically, physically, have a child. But God graced her with that. He gave her a child. And later on in Hebrews, that faith that she had is honored and heralded as the faith that we all should have and hope we should have in Jesus Christ. That is that example. So look, let's look. Again, at 5 and 6 here. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Here's our example. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. The, the past tense verb, and you are, points to a time when wives were converted and continues through perseverance today. So a Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband, she does not put her hope in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks. She, does not put her, she puts her hope in the promises of God. This is who she is. And this is the example of Sarah. And then he goes on to say, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So not only should believers do good, but they should also not give way to fear. Wives are called upon to mirrors, mirror Christ's response to His own sufferings. Very similar to how specifically that um, uh, Peter addresses the slaves and how they mirror Christ's response in suffering. When they are mistreated, they are not to fear, but to hope in God trusting that He will vindicate them on the last day. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. But this description that we see of Christian womanhood is marked first by hope in God. 
And then what grows out of that hope is fearlessness. The present hope is the invincible sovereignty of God that drives out all fear. This is what we believe. Or to say it more realistically, the daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear. And they defeat it with hope in the promises of God. So wife, what is Peter telling you today? He is telling you, you are a child of Sarah. What does that mean? It means that her God is your God. That He kept covenant with her, and He will keep covenant with you. And he says, lead with a life of growing, transparent, repentant, humble godliness in your home. Let transformed character open doors for gospel words in your marriage. And in the meantime, while in conflict, and though it may be hard, and though sometimes you may be afraid, remember, you are daughters of Sarah. Cling to Sarah's God who declared in His covenant to Abraham and to Sarah that in one of her children all the nations would be blessed. He kept that covenant with her when He sent Sarah's son, her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by His obedience and His blood secured salvation for all that would believe. This Jesus is the Savior that you need. And it is the Savior that your unbelieving husband may need, needs. So this morning, wife, have confidence in Sarah's covenant-keeping God and in the covenant kept in the cross of Jesus Christ and see how. See how the Lord works in your marriage. See how the work, Lord works in your marriage for His glory. And even if He wills the salvation of your unbelieving spouse. This is the picture of womanhood that we see today. And it is marked by unshakable hope in God. It is marked by courage and fearlessness in the face of any future. The quiet calmness of her soul. The humble submission to her husband's leadership. And I'm just going to say that this, that this is what makes it is uncomfortable because it is a great sadness that in our modern, modern society and even in the church, the different and complementary roles of biblical headship for the husband and biblical submission for the wife are despised or simply passed over. It's sad. But the truth of headship and the submission is presented here. And it's really beautiful. First, these holy women hoped in God. Then because they hoped in God, they adorned themselves with a God-honoring, gentle, and quiet spirit. And then finally, by hoping in God and adorning themselves with gentleness, they were submissive to their husbands as the church is submissive to Christ. 
And I believe Peter's desire here is that women in our day would follow the example of the holy women old and that they would win their husbands to Christ by their faithful conduct. Now, let's continue on. That a word to wives and now a word to husbands. You say, oh man, I got six verses to wives, I got one to husbands. Um, well, I think that in the context we can presume Peter is focusing on those who are liable to experience the most oppression in the culture that they're facing. And also, men, husbands, there is an expectation for us to read everything that has already been said to the slaves and to the wives and to apply it as appropriate to ourselves as well. Or we could go to Ephesians where most of it is to husbands. So let's don't get caught up in how many verses there are. Let's, caught, be, let's be caught up in the content of what is being said. The word likewise, in verse 7, likewise husbands, ties together Peter's discourse on how we are to conduct ourselves in the God-given, God-ordained relationships that we have. Wives are called to submit to their husbands and husbands are called to live in an understanding way with their wives. And before we go any further, I think just as we needed to define what submission is and is not, we need to define headship this morning. And it is nothing more. And it is nothing less. This is it. John Piper and Wayne Grudem state that headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Nothing more, nothing less. Husbands, do we understand? I mean, it's nothing more. It's nothing more than that. But it's also nothing less than that. We don't have, as followers of Christ, the ability to add anything to the Word of God. Nor should we belittle what has been said to us by God. It says, Likewise, husband, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here the exhortation here is that husbands are to live with their, their wives with knowledge of them. Knowledge according to the will of God. To know them and to regard them as God has known and treated you. This means that the husband is to live a life of humble, costly, sacrificial obedience in particular, he is to live with his wife in an understanding way. The manner of our, of our life, husbands, should reflect a commitment to knowing our brides well, responding to them sensitively, never imposing our expectations, sacrificing our preferences, changing our priorities, because you want to honor God in honoring her. And I'll just say that this is important. Just in our affirmations of what we believe about men and women, what we believe about marriage, husbands, there is no room 
for abusive words. There is no room for abusive deeds, for controlling, manipulative, domineering behavior that is anti-Bible, that is anti-Christ, and it is not affirmed here at Redeemer Church. In any moment of time that we become that, we are not like Christ. We are evil. And we need to call it as it, as it sits. Your whole life, men, my whole life, our whole life should be shaped by a commitment to understand and honor our wives. We are called to know them to spend time with them, to carefully listen to them, to pay attention to them, to show concern for them, to be involved in their life, to practice kindness to our wives, and to encourage the hope in God that they possess. Anything less is not what God has called us to. Anything less, God calls us to repent. And I stand here as the chief of sinners in that regard. We are called to live with our wives in an understanding way because it is God's will for us to know them and them to see a picture of the true husband, Jesus Christ. Let's look what comes next. We don't want to miss anything here. Stay with me, guys. This is, I know this is a lot. I just didn't want us to miss. I think this is what we need to hear. It says, what comes next? It says, not only live with them in an understanding way, but showing honor to them as the weaker vessel. Uh, weaker vessel. Now, some of us may wince a little bit as we read that. Maybe a little uncomfortable for us in our culture today, to say something like that. But I want to tell you, look, there are, there are many ways in which my wife, Marcia, is much stronger than I am. Far stronger than I am. And I praise God for it. What does Peter actually mean here? The weaker vessel. And I think this is one place where the Bible is at odds with our culture. Many places. But one that is at odds with the prevailing opinion of our culture as it relates to marriages and men and women. We are told that maleness and femaleness are merely gender constructs that are opposed upon us, that biological sex and a person's gender do not necessarily have anything to do with one another, that one's gender can be fluid, the idea that men and women are fundamentally, essentially, and necessarily different, well, in our culture today, they say that's just plain wrong and, matter of fact, ignorant. That's the received wisdom of our culture right now, but that just doesn't work with Scripture. Because Peter's meaning of a weaker vessel is not talking about anything other than sheer strength. Peter uses the word women rather than wife here and is simply directing our attention to what is uniquely feminine about women. Pointing husbands to the knowledge 
that they should have about the opposite sex. That women are uniquely created in the image of God. That they are, by design, physically weaker. And the wise husband takes this into consideration how his wife differs from him. This is God's design. For us to think anything less for that, we are missing the blessedness of His Word. I think this is an important message for us today because we need to face the fact that women continue today to be preyed upon, to be abused, and to be oppressed. The fact that we often struggle with Peter's vocabulary in this text is a testimony to us of our awareness of the vulnerability of women that exist in our society. And we're uncomfortable with anything that might seem to lend weight to anything that would support abusive behavior. We've already talked about how abuse is wrong and it is sinful, but it is also real. As Christians today, hearing that women are the weaker vessels should not offend us, nor men should it entitle us. It rather should remold and rewire how men think about women. Not as objects to be desired, not as objects to be used, nor simple as interchangeable with men, but as human beings with dignity and value that is meant to be cherished, that is meant to be protected and defended. Don't speak more into Peter than what he's saying. Peter is saying something huge and scandalous and shocking in the Greco-Roman world today. Things that would get him killed. Which ultimately happens, right church? Peter says, this woman, husband, she is an heir with you of the grace of life. And I believe this is the most profound and countercultural statement yet that Peter has made. The language of co-heirs points toward the gift of eternal life that both men and women who believe in Christ will ultimately and equally receive. Men, if you have a Christian wife, wives, if you have a Christian husband, guess what? You're going to spend eternity together. You are joint heirs of grace of life. There's not more for the husband and less for the wife. There's not more for the wife and less for the husband. We are doing this together. So your bond, you see, is deeper and stronger than mere romance or anything that's signaled by this ring on your left hand. Your bond is eternal. And because our bond is eternal, husbands, it is time to roll up our sleeves and recommit to our marriages here because they are one of God's means for preparing you and your wife for the life that is to come. It's a very 
hard message and we're really close to the end but before we close I want us to to be careful not to miss the last note that sounds in this passage this is very serious stuff he crowns all of his exhortations to husbands with this do it all he says so that your prayers will not be hindered. See, for most men, including myself, that doesn't hit you just right. Because you don't have a prayer life. Because it suffers. But let me tell you what it is saying here. Husbands who ignore these commands will find that their prayers are hindered, which means that God will refuse to hear you. God does not bless those who are in positions of authority, who abuse those who are under them by mistreating them. A Christian marriage is supposed to be a fortress of Christ-centeredness, of devotion and understanding. Not of self-centeredness, pride, and harshness. When we as husbands revert to this ladder, God will refuse to hear us. Let that sink in. God will refuse to hear you this morning. If you're not committed to live with your wife in an understanding way, if you're not committed to show honor to her, to treat her like Christ has treated you, Peter ties up this whole discourse on submission. He ends it in verse 12. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And this is hard for me to say because I'm living in this moment with you guys. And even prior to this, To live in any other way that Peter has called you husband is evil in the sight of the Lord. And He will not hear you. And that's the reality of the truth and the reality of the seriousness of the God-ordained relationship that you have with your wife. But I pray that you don't feel the condemnation of that. But because of Christ, you see the beauty of the picture that Peter is painting here. Here is a wife who adorns herself with quietness and gentleness and purity and respect. She is a godly woman that faithfully perseveres in her hope in God. 
And even if her husband does not believe, she is winsome with the Spirit-filled leading of her conduct. And here is a husband who is resolved to spend his life studying this wonderful, fascinated gift of a wife that God has brought into his world. And he works every day to live with her in an understanding way. He knows how the world treats women and he wants to protect her. They are co-heirs of heaven, of the grace of life. And so they'll not let their son go down on anger, nor the simmering of resentment last in their life. No, this husband makes, his, makes it his duty to pursue her, to know her, not just so that they may be happy, but that they may be holy, and that their prayers may not be hindered. Because in the end, husband and wife, this husband and wife here, they see and know that their marriage is not about them at all. That their marriage is about knowing God and glorifying Him in that covenant. If you're married today, that's why God brought you together. God brought together something else. Through the life of the true husband, the perfect husband, He brought back together the relationship between His people and the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. We're about to take communion together and in preparation for that communion, we are going to take a moment to reflect upon, and as Phil called us to, to remember the glories of the cross, but also to see the failings of our own sin. And as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, making sure that we observe rightly the remembering of the body and blood of Jesus Christ by repenting well. So as we reflect and as we sing, we invite you to turn away from your sin and self and turn to Jesus. He is the true husband. He is the better husband. He is the, the true, the true restorer and salvation of our souls. As we come and sing.